they're looking for, they win. Ignore them, you win. Welcome, everyone. I am Ari Engel, the Director of Creative Community for Peace. Thank you so much for joining us today. Creative Community for Peace is a nonprofit entertainment industry organization comprised of prominent members of the entertainment community who have come together to promote the arts as a bridge to peace, to educate about rising anti-Semitism within the entertainment industry, and encounter the cultural boycott of Israel. To learn more about our work and to support our work, please visit ccfpeace.com. That is ccfpeace.com dot com or creative community for peace dot com. We're glad to have all of you in our public square as we present Dispelling the Myth Season 2, a fantastic educational series of conversations with some of the leading experts on the issues and challenges facing Israel and the Jewish people today. In today's conversation, we'll be discussing the religious Zionist movement from its inception with Rabbi Cook in the late 1800s to its modern manifestations with Smutrich and Ben Gavir today. Feel free to leave questions in the Q&A section of the chat, and I'll try to get to as many of them as possible towards the end of the discussion. And as usual, we ask that you just please only leave actual questions in the Q&A section, as you can always just email us general comments. This week's guest is Yehuda Mirsky, who is a professor of Near Eastern and Judaic Studies at Brandeis University and on the faculty of the Schusterman Center for Israel Studies. He graduated from Yale Law School, where he was an editor of the Law Review and completed his PhD in religion at Harvard. He previously served in the US State Department's Human Rights Bureau and has been active in grassroots politics in Jerusalem for many years. Um, he has written for the New York Times, Washington Post, Economist, Guardian, and many other outlets, and he splits his time between Israel and America. Yehuda is also the author of the award-winning book, Rav Cook, Mystic in a Time of Revolution, which will form the basis of our discussion today. Welcome, Yehuda. Hi, hi. Um... Thanks for having me, and thank you, thank you, Matthew and Ari, for inviting me and for all your help. Absolutely. So let's thank start with everyone this. for coming. Absolutely. Um, and and I know a lot of people are looking forward to this discussion because it's such a a, a a topic that is on everybody's minds and in the news these days. But let's start with the founder of the religious Zionist movement, right. Rabbi Abraham Isaac Cook, who was born in Latvia in 1865 mm -hmm. and became a leading rabbi in Lithuania, really the heart of the Jewish religious community back then. Mm -hmm. What can you tell us about his life in these early days and what drew him to the Zionist movement when most Orthodox Jews at that time didn't want anything to do with the Zionist movement? Right. So, you know, um, I'll be brief talking about Rev Cook briefly, you know, often reminds me of the Monty Python sketch of the All England Summarized Proust competition because he's such a brilliant <laughs> writer and figure. Um, one thing, okay, well, let's say it like this. Um, Zionism, as we know, arose as a response to two related sets of problems in, in Jewish life in the 19th century. Um, what the Zionist think, important Zionist thinker, writer, um, Herzl's chief critic within the movement, Acharaam, called the problem of the Jews and the problem of the Jew, and the problem of Judaism, right? There was this thing called the Jewish problem, and Acharaam astutely, and it's it's a it's a way of looking at it that still helps. Um, Acharaam said it's really two problems. There's the problem of the Jews, which is to say securing Jewish social, economic, and political well-being um, in this in the new and different conditions of modern life. Jewish communities are no longer self-contained. They're no longer legally defined. Jews are mixing and matching with culture, especially in Europe, in all kinds of interesting and complicated ways. And there's this new thing called modern anti-Semitism, which is something that European society was supposed to leave behind with emancipation and with secularization and all that. That's the problem of the Jews. The problem of Judaism is you know the problem of how do people why go on being Jewish? What is meaningful about Jewish being Jewish to people when you no longer have the communal structures? When modern science and philosophy have done their work on traditional religious ideas, and so much of modern Jewish history is about, and so many of the movements that arise in modern Jewish history, Zionism not least among them, are responses to those, and they're mixing and matching with one another. Now. The Zionist movement, and again, there's a lively historical debate as to when the Zionist movement begins. Does it begin with Theodor Herzl in the 1890s? Does it start with modernizing oriented pioneers who moved to Palestine in the 1880s? Some historians would tell you it actually starts around 1810 when you start having very Orthodox Jews moving to Palestine, but with the idea of creating new institutions, learning agriculture, that sort of thing. We'll leave right. that aside. Right. Um, 
the Zionist movement arises in the late 19th century with Theodore Herzl, and it has two phases, political Zionism and cultural Zionism, right? The political Zionism of Theodore Herzl, let's create a state. The cultural Zionism of Achara Am, who I mentioned a moment ago, who um, is who who thinks that the emphasis has to be on creating a new Jewish culture, reviving Hebrew, all of that. Now, most of the rabbis of the time, as you rightly note, the Orthodox rabbis of the time are very against all of this uh, for good reasons. One, you know, the assimilated Viennese playwright journalist Theodor Herzl is nobody's idea of what a messiah is supposed to look like. Right. Um, exile ends, according to traditional Jewish belief, when God says it ends as a reward for good behavior, not as a reward for massive secularization. Right. And also because rabbinic political wisdom had held for a long time and had very good results for saying like, keep your head low, don't get involved in large power politics, just hold yourself together, don't mix it up mix it up with the Gentiles. So Zionism seemed to run counter to that. There were some rabbis who thought that of the different ideas on offer for ameliorating Jewish social, political, economic disability, Zionism was one of the better ones. And actually they were the original official religious Zionists. In 1902, they create a religious Zionist party within the Zionist movement. And their understanding with Theodor Herzl is, we're with you on the social things, the political things, the economic things, don't deal with culture, don't deal with spirituality, or leave that stuff to us, okay? Rav Cook, Abraham Isaac Cook. Now, why are, what, what's the stakes involved in talking about this rabbi who died in 1935? Um, he's historically very significant, and he's also a really important, he's an important figure in Israel to this day. It's hard to emphasize the extent to which people still talk about him, write about him. When I was last in Jerusalem in February, I went to a big bookstore there. There was an entire bookcase full of books by or about Rav Cook, and almost all of them had been published just in recent years. Wow. Right. So he's still a very living presence in many ways, um, both because of who he was and his ideas and all of that, and also because he seemed to offer a way of dealing with the multiple crises of modernity and offered people a path forward. What do I mean? So, as I said, the early um, rabbinic supporters of Zionism uh, said, you know, let's focus on social, political, economic stuff. Don't get involved with religion. And the whole notion, we often lose sight of the fact that Zionism was in many ways a rebellion also against Jewish tradition, traditional Jewish culture. Certainly when, he, when, he talks, when we're talking about Eastern European Zionist revolutionaries, most famous being David Ben-Gurion, they're very explicitly an open revolt against Jewish tradition and culture because they think they have a better Hebrew culture that they want to offer. And the rabbis don't want any part of that. Rav Cook stands alone in that he decides actually, he comes to the conclusion that, no, no, actually the cultural spiritual revelation is great. It's just, revolution is great. It's just what we need. Right. He, he moves to Palestine in 1904. And why did he decide, just quickly, like, so why did he decide, right. he wanted to really merge the, the the Herzl vision of we need to build a state for to solve um, the anti-Semitism well, problem, well, and then the Ahada Am, which was, right. no, we don't need a state. We need the religious side. We need to like reinfuse and reinvigorate right. Judaism. Well, so he was sort of like the combination of those two. He was sort of the combination of the two, but interestingly, we'll get into some of it later. He didn't think much about statehood. He thought more mm -hmm. about the nation, right? You have Zionist thinkers who thought a lot about what it was state look like and others who like were more idealistic and like, or were willing to kick the can of statehood down the road. We'll get right. to this. And you know what? I guess, I guess during that time, this is the Ottoman Empire time when maybe well, statehood also seemed very far off. Well, that's the thing. Like I always tell my students, you know, when Theodore Herzl dies in 1897, he has no idea, right? That that just a few that 20 years on, World War One is going to start. That the by the end of which the Ottoman Empire, Russian Empire, Austro-Hungarian Empire that he grew up in will have disintegrated, etc., and the world will be so changed. So what Rav Cook does, it's 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 really interesting. I'll try to keep it brief. Even before he moves to Palestine at the age of 38 to become the rabbi of Yafo and the and the agricultural colonies of the new Yishuv, the new Jewish community in Palestine, because there is no Tel Aviv then, right? So in other words, right. being the chief rabbi of Yafo is like being the rabbi of Tel Aviv, being like the rabbi of the new land of Israel. Um, he is steeped in, he's, he's a major rabbinic scholar. Um, he's also immensely learned in first of the entirety of, of Jewish literature, um, including philosophy and very significantly the mystical tradition, the Kabbalah. He's also for a rabbi of his kind, very curious about and pretty well read in things like European literature and philosophy. And he's 
in his mind, he's working on large theological problems and on concrete problems as well. The theological problems are, you know, how does the Jewish body relate to the Jewish soul? Right. right? How do our physical lives relate to our spiritual lives? How does Jewish morals relate? How do, how do Jewish ethics relate to universal ethics? Right. And he's also, as a rabbi and educator, concerned with what he sees as the decay of traditional Jewish life to which he's deeply committed, right? Basically, I mean, to make a long story short, he comes to the, he develops a line of thought and of argumentation with his rabbinic colleagues that goes like this. Hey, guys, these secular Zionist revolutionaries who are rebelling against us, they're not rebelling against us because they're looking for easy lives. They're moving to Palestine and draining swamps and getting shot at by Arabs. And they're trying to and they're and they're trying to live ideals of social justice, which we have to care about. Or they're staying in Russia and they're fighting with the czar and they're getting sent to Siberia because they really care about the suffering of the masses. We need to care about what they're caring about. They're not rebelling against us out of sheer you know, laziness or anything like that. What's more, he says, they are right that our religious ideas and our religious thinking have lost a lot of their vitality, that we've become too defensive, all this kind of stuff. And, but what, what he does is, so he's willing to like identify with the youthful rebellion right. of these like Zionist socialists and say, astoundingly, this is God working through history. Okay. And, and, and it's interesting because he, once again, he left sort of the center of Judaism, which was Lith or Ashkenazi mm -hmm. Judaism, which was Lithuania. Right, right, yes, yes, and like, yes. And he left that mm -hmm. instead of working there with people to try and bring them closer right. back to Judaism. He said, you know, these revolutionaries that are these Zionists that are going to Israel, I need to go or the land of or the British man of Palestine there, or even yes. Palestine then. Palestine. To, right. It was even before that. I need to go there and sort of work with them to make sure that this movement has some sort of religious element. Well, also, because I mean, it's and and also he's like he's very much on his own personal quest as well. Um, he also has all kinds of ideas, like I said a moment about the Jewish body, the Jewish soul. He develops a theory of Jewish history, so to speak, that the the Judaism of the Bible is very embodied, right? The Bible that's a book full of like violence and lust and sex and and prophecy is given in this very immediate sort of way, and it's about wars and kings and prophets arguing with kings and all of that. Um, the Judaism of the rabbis, rabbinic and Talmudic Judaism that sustained the Jews for thousands of years is in many ways very different. It's not national. It's diasporic. It's all over the place. It's much more spiritualized. It's much more internal. It's highly ethicized because Jews don't have power. Right. So thesis, antithesis. Now, the synthesis is going to be the Jewish return to Zion in which the Jews will create an embodied religion that's also spiritual. They will, sure. this is his thinking, they will exercise political power in a way that is also ethical. Right. And, and the advantage of the Zionist revolution is that it is pushing him and others to do stuff that they otherwise wouldn't do, to think of historical possibilities that they otherwise wouldn't be considering. Now, in addition, he has ideas about changing the rabbinate. He's, he tries to open rabbinical schools where he says we should have rabbis who, like me, study literature and philosophy and, and are concerned with social problems. He has ideas eventually about changing Jewish law. Interestingly, the first thing that he writes in response to hearing about the first Zionist Congress in 1897 is about Jewish law. He says, ah, if the Jews return to Zion, maybe we can reconstitute the ancient Sanhedrin, the ancient rabbinic legal system, and we can wreak good change. We can make good changes in Jewish law. And he says something really interesting. The Jewish law has to change. The problem with Reform Judaism is that they believe in exile. Right. And this has to happen with renewed Jewish people in the land of Israel. Right. So he's at one in the, as you may have gathered, he's also a highly idealistic individual. Right. And he's also what's very crucial for our times. And it's really important, especially today, through a combination of his personality and his understanding of Kabbalah and Jewish spirituality, he comes to the profound conclusion, which isn't, it shouldn't be news, but it still is. Just because somebody disagrees with me doesn't mean they don't have principles. Right. Right. And a, no, a novel concept. <laughs> it's a novel concept. And he does, he says like, you know, he has this amazing passage. By the way, most of what he writes theologically is in his journals. And so like they're very expressive and they're very rich and they're very lyrical. And those get edited into his canonical works. So he says in one amazing passage, you know, like every human being 
has feels a connection to land, to people, to family, and every human being has a has a connection to all of humanity and universalism. And every human being, at least to his mind, has a, has a longing for God and transcendence. And the problem right. today is that each one has become the property of a party. <laughs> that we have the right. national party and the religious <laughs> party, and we have the ethics party. And we have to open ourselves up to appreciate one another. And that's a very consistent line of his throughout. And it makes him enemies. Right. And what, what was his relationship with the early Zionist leaders like Herzl and Jabotinsky? Okay. Well, it's like this. Herzl, you know, he never met or anything like that. What's interesting is, say, during World War I mean, he's on good relations with the Zionist leadership, most of them, especially the ones who had some appreciation for tradition. Um, what's very interesting is, say, during at the outbreak of World War I, he finds himself in Europe. He was there for a rabbinic conference and for medical treatment for himself and for his wife. And uh, so he's stranded in Europe for World War I, and he ends up spending much of the time in London. He's the rabbi of a synagogue in London, a Jewish community in London. And so Chaim Weizmann at the time is working on the Balfour Declaration, and he sends his lieutenant, Nahum Sokolow, um, to sort of recruit Rev Cook for the political work of getting the Balfour Declaration going. And Sokolov, Sokolov reports back to Weizmann, listen, he's a great man. He's a genius. He's an amazing thinker. He's this luminous personality. There's really not a whole lot to talk to him about, about the nuts and bolts of lobbying and politics. Right. Um, and so that's often how they regarded him. They had immense respect for him as a person, right? Um you know, sometimes, but he wasn't part of the political Zionist. He wasn't sort of part of the political Zionist thing. The Mizrahi, which, like the 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 the, 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 the official religious Zionist party, was right um, during the. Now, what happens after World War One? You know, the Balfour Declaration seems to remember. He thinks that maybe all this is happening. All these that he sees himself as living in messianic times, right? right? That is why all the contradictions of Jewish life and modern history are coming to the surface. That's why, you know, World War I is this cataclysmic thing. It's like the war preceding the Armageddon, preceding redemption, et cetera. And astonishingly, the Balfour Declaration seems to validate that reading of events, right? This war, it, during the war, he writes that, you know, he's just unnerved, as is everyone, by the slaughter, the horror, the rivers of blood, the everything, and just it's, you know, and then it's sort of saved by the bell, so to speak, that like the now the British Empire has said that the Jews can build a national home in Palestine. Right. All of a sudden, the Ottoman Empire, after four or five hundred years, disintegrated. And there's the Balfour Declaration claiming that the Jews have a right to, you know, a, a state of historical right. land. And, and so comes, this is sort of to him like a messianic, okay, totally this actually may work. Thing. And he says, okay, the Zionist movement, this is when he formulates a program. The Zionist movement is doing its thing politically, and that's great. It needs something that's also going to provide the religious and spiritual revolution. And right. So he comes back to Palestine. He becomes in 1919 chief rabbi of the Ashkenazi community of Jerusalem. And then in 1921, the founder of the chief rabbinate, right? The chief rabbinate, which exists till the present day. The chief rabbinate um, is created by three sets of actors, really. Uh, the first are the British for whom, you know, like any good colonial power, what you want to do is you want to find, identify local notables and religious people, put them in charge of the things that don't really matter to you, like religious life, like marriage, divorce, that kind of thing. And you don't have to worry about that. And that's how things worked under the Ottomans and the British are happy to have that continue. Um, secular Zionism during those years is all about building institutions. Um, and so building institutions, um, we should have religious institutions too especially those that can like manage religious affairs, um, represent world Jewry before the court of public opinion, and also crucially, which we can manage, right? Now, it's obvious to everyone that Rav Cook has to be the first Ashkenazi chief rabbi, not just because he's the most prominent rabbinic supporter of the rabbinic project overall, but also relative to all the other rabbis of the time, he actually has a theology that's worked out for this. Right. He has a theology and a philosophy and a program. So he becomes the first Ashkenazi chief rabbi alongside um, his Sephardic uh, colleague, uh, Rabbi Yaakov Meir. And this is in some ways where things get very difficult. Why? Because how do you translate these magnificent visions into action? Um, he was this remarkably conciliatory personality, and that gets in the way of politics. You read memoirs by politicians. They say, like, you know, like, whenever I come to Rav Cook for help, he tells me I should understand the other guy's point of view. Okay, that's great, but like I need help on something, right? right? You know, so he tries, he tries to implement this very conciliatory philosophy and he has a very hard time. 
Um, he's also unwilling to ally himself with any one political party. Which the is probably beneficial, no? Well, yes and no. It's beneficial morally, but it means he didn't get access to budgets. Okay. Um, but also one thing, there was only one party that he liked, and it's one worth talking about. It's one of the better kept secrets that for decades there was left-wing religious Zionism. There was this party called Hapoel Hamizrahi, the religious Zion, the, 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 the religious Zionist workers party. It was formed in the 1920s. Um, it existed as a separate party until the 1950s. And this was a party of Orthodox Jews who were also socialists and who had like for whom like Orthodox Judaism and concern, concern for social justice and those kinds of ethics go went utterly hand in hand. Rav Cook told people, you know, I feel that because of my position, I can't really vote for a single party. Right. If I could vote for a party, this is the one I would vote for. Okay. Right. So, and, and the quick question. So he's the chief rabbi in British Mandate Palestine. What's his relationship with the Arabs living there at this time? Did he have any sort of relationship? Yeah, that's with a good the... question. It's like this. Like many early Zionists, he had a hard time seeing what was happening in some ways. Like many early Zionists, A, he didn't, you know, Palestinian nationalism is a fact of our lives. It does not diminish Palestinian nationalism as a fact of our lives with genuine claims and moral claims to note that it didn't start really coming together until the around 1910 or so, right? And so for many early Zionists, you know, they sort of saw an, an undifferentiated sea of Arabs right, sort of from North Africa stretching through to the Euphrates. And it took them a while to start to realize that there was a national movement here, and Rav Cook was among that. He never denigrates Arabs. He's regularly telling his disciples not to speak ill of them. Where this really starts getting tested is in the late 1920s. Um, in the late 1920s, when Arab Jewish tensions really start building and build into violence. You asked earlier about his relationship to Jabotinsky. He doesn't have much of a relationship with Jabotinsky because also who Jabotinsky was is not how Jabotinsky is remembered in many ways. I mean, so Jabotinsky was a sec was very much a secular liberal nationalist. Right. Jabotinsky was very much a capitalist. Yeah. And Jabotinsky's brand of militarism was extremely foreign to Rev Cook and how he thought about things. Uh, he did appreciate that Jabotinsky and his people took pride in things. And um, he did give favorable comments to a demonstration of Jabotinskyites in 1929, which was then cited by people as one of the things that led to the riots of 1929. Because also what happens in the Palestinian national struggle in the late 1920s is that the Mufti of Jerusalem, uh, Hajjimin al-Husseini, um, the head of the and the, the head of the, the, the Supreme Muslim Council, which the British had also created, um, who was like a very canny, astute political player, much younger than Rev Cook and not much of an idea of a religious authority, very much wanted to turn the struggle into a religious struggle and into a local Palestinian struggle. And he repeatedly tries to draw, draw Rev Cook into a war of words on that. He sends him open letters and Rev Cook refuses to take the bait. No, like, I am not at war with you. We don't want war with you, that kind of thing. But events start overtaking everyone. And finally, most importantly, in um, 1933, uh, Chaim Lazarov, the general secretary of the Labor Party, is murdered walking on the beach in Tel Aviv. I think that was recently the subject of a, of a mystery novel by Jonathan Wilson that's been getting reviewed in all sorts of places. Um, and Jabotinskyites are blamed for that, in part because they were there were tremendous tensions between the Jabotinskyites and labor Zionists, and also because in, this was like 1933, Hitler had come to power, and in the early years, labor Zionists said we need to negotiate with Hitler to get Jews out of Europe, and the Jabotinskyites thought that that was a tremendous affront to Jewish right. pride. Jabotinskyites were arrested. Um, after a while, it turned out that they hadn't done it. Rav Kook threw himself into their defense. Um, they were eventually acquitted. And then what happened was the Israeli left decided that Rav Cook was a Jabotinskyite, which he never was. Interesting. So he dies in 1935. He dies in 1935. What was his vision for a future state of Israel at the time? Did he have a vision of what so the state the may look like? And, and had, I would also add, just to add, did sure. he, was he thinking like along the Begin Jabotinskyites that there needed to be 
a state in all of the land of Israel, or was he open to part of the land like the Ben-Gurion and the Weitzman? That issue never came to him. Again, he dies in 1935. The Peel partition plan isn't on the table until two years after his death. You know, people aren't thinking in those terms. Um, The land of Israel is really important for him because the land of Israel, remember I said earlier that much of his religious vision is about a Judaism of body and soul, right? That takes place in the land of Israel, right? For him, like, and he said, he's deeply influenced by the Kabbalah. For the Kabbalah, the land of Israel is in a deep sense, a manifestation of God's presence on earth, along with the Jewish people, along with interestingly, the written Torah, the oral Torah, the Torah as understood and interpreted by human beings and lived by human beings. So it's a very heady combination for him. And he doesn't really deal much with the politics of it. Presumably he would have wanted to see some Jewish entity in the entire land of Israel, but also generally he writes, and this is like a position of mine as a scholar of his and other scholars might disagree. In my view, he writes very little about state institutions, statecraft, parliaments, constitutions, that kind of thing. He's both, he writes a lot about what he thinks rabbinic institutions ought to look like, but he doesn't write much about the state. And also, philosophically, he's much more interested in the nation than he is in the state, right? For him, he does at one point make a comment where he seems to denigrate the thin liberal state. He borrows a line from Ralph Waldo Emerson, right? Ralph Waldo Emerson talked about people who view the state as nothing but a joint stock insurance company, right? So like the thin, very liberal watchman state. And he says, no, that's not what the state is supposed to be. The state is supposed to be like the place where you realize your truest aspirations, where it's God's seat on earth and that sort of thing. It's one of the only places that he mentions the state. And that's one of the reasons people go on about it a great deal, but he spells out very little. And, and, and so like the tricky thing, then why do people argue about this so much? I would put it like this. There's this sense that people had that Rav Cook, so does, modernity is so confusing, right? It's the best of times. It's the worst of times. Jewish communities are falling apart and there's creative and cultural flourishing. The Jews are getting destroyed in pogroms and they're rebuilding the land of Israel. You know, they're like incredibly weak and they're incredibly powerful. It's this very confusing time. Right. And Rav Kook articulates a traditional Jewish theology, which at the one and the same time, valid comes out of the deepest sources of the tradition, the Talmud, the Kabbalah, Maimonides philosophy, and resonates with deep modern ideas like the celebration of art and the celebration of culture and even the celebration of revolution. And he seems to, so to speak, have cracked the code. It's like he got the code book and then people wonder then how do I use this code book to understand confusing turns of events, especially after the Holocaust. Right. So and that so that takes us. So his he dies and his son's V carries on his, his legacy. Son's, his son's all the way into the 80s. Right. So right. Um, how is his vision different for Israel? Right. Right. Um, and did anybody else take up the mantle? And also, as you mentioned, keeping in mind that he his son lived through the Holocaust. Well, that's the thing. So his son, Svihuda, takes his place at the head of the yeshiva that he founded, Yeshivat Merkazara. Now, in some respects, in personal terms, Rav Kook is an impossible act to follow. You know, like being the son of someone like that is like a really hard thing to do. And also Tzvi Yehuda, Tzvi Yehuda, with all due respect and like wonderful scholar and educator and all of that, just like wasn't his, didn't, wasn't the great, like the world, you know, the the great philosophical, et cetera, genius that his father was, you know, just a week or two, like I regularly in my academic life have to referee academic papers and they're regularly papers comparing Rav Cook to like major modern philosophers like Henri Bergson or Hegel or something like that. And with Rav it's just not pertinent to do that. That being said, Rav was made to deal with challenges that his father never had to face, namely the Holocaust and then the creation of the actual existing state of Israel with its compromises, including the partition plan. Right. Long story short, Tzvi concluded that um, the Holocaust was, in the phrase that he used, the radical surgery that God performed on the Jewish people to bring them out of exile to the state of Israel. And he didn't say that happily. He didn't say that triumphantly. This is a man who spoke Yiddish most of his life and lived many years in Eastern Europe. But he concluded that if God was willing to do this to the Jewish people to bring about the redemption of the land of Israel, the land of Israel has to be more important even than my father thought it was. Right. And he comes to the conclusion that the actual existing state of Israel with its compromises, with its prosaic institutions, like its post office and its, is an act in the divine drama of redemption. This is it. Um, and, and what you also have, and this is very crucial, 
in the 1950s and 60s, there's slide, you know, for remember, remember the guys we left behind the, the, the religious Zionist establishment who joined the Zionist movement and made their own party and all of that. They eventually become the National Religious Party. They are very content to always be second banana to the Labor Party. Right. They're very content to be just like to be minority. Clearly, they are not the conductor. You know, they're right. Sort of like the joke used to be. They're not the conductor of the train. They're the kashrut supervisor in the kitchen. That's a little mm -hmm. unfair because they were serious intellectuals and they were very concerned with social and economic issues and ethical issues. But you see my point. Over the years, you begin to get a rising young religious Zionist activist cadre who read Rav Cook and been inspired by his students, Sviuda one is one of them, who think, no, 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 like we actually know where the Zionist revolution is going. We see that we understand how this is God's plan through the Jewish people to redeem the entire human race. Right. We deserve a seat at the table. And where this really takes off isn't after the 1967 wars, many people think, but after 1973. Right. So now we have you know, in 1967, the Jews gained control of the West Bank. Right, all that this stuff. This was viewed as an act from God by the right. religious Zionists. Right. And, you know, finally the return of Judea and Samaria right. to Jewish hands. Right. right. But, but I think what you're getting is the early settlers or the people that were settling right. the land, even in, after 1967, were the labor Zionists who were sort of right. continuing Yeah, they were labor the Zionists. A wonderful, a wonderful book on this is by my friend and colleague Gershom Gorenberg, The Accidental Empire. Um, most of the settlements after 60, between 67 and 73 were being done by labor Zionism and in places that were important for security, like the Golan Heights and right. so on, because that was their very familiar playbook. You had some religious Zionist settlement in the Etzion block outside Jerusalem, which had been a site of religious Zionist and one secular kibbutzim before 1948 and in Hebron, but that was kind of it. After 1973, it's hard to convey, I mean, we're coming on the anniversary of the 1973 war. The 1973 war was this apocalyptic moment in Israeli history, right? Um, and it still reverberates. And at a in in like in a flash, it discredited the labor establishment, right? Golda Meir and all of that. And you had now these young religious Zionists saying, okay, this is our time to take the mantle of leadership. And that's when you really start getting the major moves towards the settlement movement. And with Tzvi Yehuda, and because Tzvi Yehuda, Tzvi Yehuda said that the Israeli state is the is like itself part of the messianic redemption, that is why planting the flag of Israeli sovereignty on a hilltop in Judea and Samaria is important for the redemption of Israel and the human race. Right. That's the motivation. I was living on the West Bank in those years, the late 1970s. That's the motivation. And then Menachem Begin comes to power in 1977, right, in the Likud. Much of what Menachem Begin does is that Begin reaches out to people who were marginalized under labor, which is to say Sephardic, obviously his own revisionist Zionists, Jabotinskyites, um, Sephardim, Mizrahim, and these more activist circles of, and religious Zionism, and especially, and also the Hari, the, he, he gives the Haredim better conditions than they had under, under labor governments and these religious Zionists, and he's in favor of settlement for his own Jabotinskyite reasons. Right. And also with time begins to see that the settlements are also a way of dealing with Israel's housing crisis. You know, like we have to remember most of the people who live in officially the territories are not there for ideological reasons. They're because it's affordable housing in a reasonable commute from Jerusalem and Tel Aviv. Right. And, and most of them are really on the borders of Jerusalem. And on the most, edge and of, most of them, that's what we call the settlement blocks. They're on the borders of Jerusalem, right. or on the borders of Tel Aviv, that sort of thing, yes. But these, the religious Zionist movement, as you say, after 1973, they became the new pioneers. And I think it was their feeling that they, they saw out on the fervor of the pre-state Israel. Mm -hmm. um, and now they were the ones sacrificing their comfort for the greater right. vision. Can you and talk a little bit more sure. about Well, because that? even before... Even before 67, you had secular Zionist intellectuals who were beginning to wonder out loud, um, is Israeli society going soft? Are we losing our revolutionary fervor? Are we um, becoming too comfortable with like the bourgeois blandishments of exile, et cetera, et cetera, the blandishments of consumer capitalism and so on and so forth, which given how socialist Israel still was in those years is kind of funny, but they were starting to think in those terms. And the religious Zionists very much see that. They increasingly see themselves over, and over time even more, as the last Zionists, right? We still believe in settling the land. We believe in sacrificing. We are worth, you know, having us and our children get shot at um, by people in order to settle the land. You know, we have this larger vision for, um, for the state. 
Also, what's really crucial, and especially once we go through the 80s and the 90s, is that, um, and this has to do with like some of the crises of liberalism around the world. In Israeli society, you know, over with the privatizations and the high-tech economy and all of that, which is terrific, but a lot of like the webbing of social community that held together secular idealistic Zionism vanishes. The kibbutzim, the moshavim, the cooperative settlements, the labor federations, which weren't just labor unions, they were also cultural associations and social associations. You know, the way that privatization does its thing on society. And yet at the same time, the religious Zionists still have that very strong sense of community because of the way the religious life cycle works, because they all have to live in walking distance of one another in their synagogues, because they're creating these self-contained communities in the West Bank and Samaria, right? Um, now, where they hit big crisis is 1993 with the Oslo Accords, right? I mean, Begin is a problem. There's the evacuation from Sinai, but still Sinai doesn't have the biblical power of Judea and Samaria. The Oslo Accords hit them. And because they come out of the blue, Yitzhak Rabin himself is surprised by the Oslo reports. Um, and, and they're like, wait a second, like we're dealing with Arafat now. And part of their sense, interestingly, is that when I talk to them, they say like, like we're the messianic ones here? What's this notion with like the new Middle East and now America runs the world and there's no more wars and there's no more bloodshed? Yasser Arafat is a peacemaker. What's what, like, and you think we're the starry-eyed idealists here? They respond very vigorously and very militantly. Now, it's important to note that Yigal Amir did not really come from the heart of the religious Zionist movement. You know, he hadn't grown up in its youth movements. He hadn't quite been educated in its yeshivot. He hadn't. And that's important because one thing that you do did find among all of them is like still a basic respect for the state and its institutions. But the rhetoric was extremely heated and regularly overheated. And after the Rebbein assassination, many thought, OK, we need to do some thinking about this. Right. right. Um, by the way, earlier you asked if there were alternative voices. I would be remiss if I did not mention my rabbi and teacher, Rabbi Yehuda Amital, who uh, was a Holocaust survivor and a major educator, was the founder of the flagship religious Zionist yeshiva in uh, Gush Etzion that I mentioned earlier. And early on was a was also a he had studied Rav Cook in Europe and in the Nazi labor camp in which he was imprisoned. Um, and he was a a a a supporter and a theologian of the settlement movement, and eventually he broke with it um, for moral reasons. Very much over the watershed for him was uh, the was um, the, the Israel's indirect responsibility for the massacres at Sabra and Shatila. And as a question, he used to say, in terms of how you interpret Rav Kook, Rav Tzvi Yehuda said the most important thing is the land in in his father's teachings is the land of Israel. I say the most important things in his in his father's teachings is ethics. And also, I refuse to say that God, I refuse to say that I read God's mind and I know why God caused the Holocaust. Right. So he was an important vo alternative voice in religious Zionism, never quite caught traction. He created a political party. It didn't really go anywhere because, frankly, he and his cohorts were too nice. Um, but the thing is, then when in 2005, the Gaza disengagement. Well, so just before that, right, so please. even in the 1980s, some yes. people like Mayor Kahan emerged, essentially oh, like these Jewish nationalists. Was right. Kahan influenced by Rev Cook in his writings? No. no. Kahana so that was a whole different stream. Kahana is a different sort of figure. Kahana comes out of comes out of the crazy New York of the 1960s and 70s that I grew up in. Um, Kahana is an Orthodox Jew. He's quite brilliant. Um, and his father is an ardent Jabotinskyite, and he comes very much out of, also, he's a radical Jabotinskyite, because we forget, especially when you look at today's Likud, Jabotinsky was a huge believer in the rule of law. I mean, it's interesting, just one thing to note about the, 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 the disputes racking Israel today, there's a lot of things to note, but one of them, so many of Netanyahu's severe opponents on, this on his judicial reform programs are themselves veteran Likud people because they said this was not the Likud way, this is not how Begin did things, et cetera, et cetera. At any rate, Kahana is this um, Jabotinskyite, and Kahana puts at the center of his theology something that you never see in Rav Cook's writings, which is revenge. Right. For him. And again, he's coming after the Holocaust. And also, frankly, Kahana is stewing in the racial turmoil of America in the 1960s. I mean, that's you can't understand him without knowing that he's coming out of that as well. Um, you know, the collapse of American liberalism, the decay of American cities, and also the Soviet Jewry movement and the right. turn to activism, the Soviet Jewry movement, et cetera. But crucially, he develops. He's a, he's a brilliant man, Kahana, and very learned. 
I mean, he's not Rav Cook, but, and, and he develops a theology of revenge, right? The way you make God's presence manifest in the world is taking revenge on God's enemies. It's a much, much darker vision. I mean, eventually he would, I think he would say, yeah, I'm, I'm like with Rev Cook, I'm taking Rev Cook further, but I, my mind is, I think that that's nonsense. Um, but again, you know, people are allowed to interpret how they want to interpret things, but he comes from very different sources, right? And also once he comes to, to the land of Israel, once he comes in Aliyah, the kind of, of violence that he advocates is something that most religious Zionists never did for a long time. I mean, they walk a fine line, but they, but this sort of saying, like, we have to avenge, we have to take, we have to take, we have to be violent, we have to expel all the Arabs, we have to take away all their rights, that sort of thing. Um, by the way, Kahana thought that this was appropriate for Israel. He thought, no, in America, you, like, you have separation of church and state, have Muslim life in America, who cares, but not here in the land of Israel. Um, so, so you have this Oslo happening right, right now. You have that taking place in the 90s where the right. religious Zionists so, I mean, believe then, that you were literally right. going against God's will. Then right. you, start over in, you have 2005 and the disengagement right. from Gaza. So what happens in the 2005 Gaza disengagement is really interesting because religious Zionists as a whole decide to take a different tack. Most of them, not all of them, including the Salah was an exception here, but they take a different tack. They say, we're going to protest this thing, but we're going to do it much more peacefully. We're going to tone down the rhetoric. Our, I mean, their basic slogan, their fundamental slogan, was they adopted as a line from a popular song, There is, we have love in us and love will win, right? They, by their lights, they try to be as nonviolent as possible. And then still, not just do they lose, but, and here they have a point, right? They, it, you know, all sorts of things that the Israeli state was using against Palestinians, they use against them like administrative detention and stopping people on their way to demonstrations and holding minors for a long time in detention and all kinds of things. Also, they say, these, you know, Arik Sharon, aside from one occasion, never really explained why he's doing what he's doing, unlike Rabin and Paris during Oslo. So it gives rise to all kinds of conspiracy theories that he's doing it to get out of criminal charges. He never has the courage to go and talk to the settlers who he had been their patron for years. Um, and explain to them why he's doing what he's doing. Um, and also, you know, let's hold a referendum. I don't like how the referendum went. Okay, the referendum didn't count. I'll take a vote in my party. The party goes doesn't go with me. Okay, I'm going to make another party. And they say, wait a second, you're breaking the rules here. And once the Gazan disengagement happens, and then everything that they predict would happen happens, right? Hamas takes, also because crucially, Sharon does the Gaza disengagement not as part of an agreement with the Palestinian Authority, but he just sort of leaves, pulls out the settlers and the soldiers and throws the keys over the fence and hopes for the best, so to speak. So when the settlers see and everything that, you know, Hamas takes over and starts shooting rockets, for many of them, it's no more Mr. Nice Guy. And this is when you start getting the really extreme version of religious Zionism, exemplified by Bitsal Smutrich, today's finance minister and minister in the Defense Department, who says, I have to take over the government. Yeah. I have to take over the state. This state is no longer my state. That's a big difference between like Itamar Ben-Gvir gets many headlines, also because he's much more of a media showman than Smutrich is. He's a much more, we know about Kahana, he's a much more recognizable figure, um, certainly to, to American audiences. Um, but he's different. For, for, for Ben Gvir, there's a few crucial differences between Ben Gvir and Smutrich. One, for Ben Gvir, the enemy is the Arabs. For Smutrich, the enemy is the state. Two, Ben Gvir doesn't know how government works. Part of why he's been getting himself into trouble, so early as he has no idea how things work. Smutrich has spent, Smutrich and his guys have spent a long time studying how government works. In an earlier government, uh, Smutrich served as transportation minister, and by all accounts, he was extremely capable. Yeah. Right. And he's given a lot of thought to how you seize the levers of power and how you make them work. And that is what he's trying to do. And a crucial thing. Now, he doesn't represent all the religious Zionists. In many ways, a friend of mine, dear friend of mine, Tihila Friedman, who some of you may have heard of, she was a member of Knesset um, in Benny Gantz's party, remarkable figure. She put it really well in exchange we were having earlier today. The religious Zionist world is now split between those who still see themselves, still value secular Israel, and like Rick Cook did, like and appreciate the idealism of secular Israel and want to work with it, right? And then and 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 see themselves as partners working with Israelis who aren't like them, on the one hand, and the religious Zionists, Allah, Smutrich, Rothman, etc., 
who for whom no 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 secular Israel is done it's gone these people they say they they, they say they're going to leave the country let them go I don't need them right I need to be running these things I need to be setting the tone because it's a kind of like almost Leninist thinking you know I have the correct interpretation of history and they don't right so Ben Gavir is really part of the Mayor Kahana sort of very much nationalist sort of well, movement and well, Smotrich is sort of comes out of the religious Zionist right, movement. Right, right. In ways that ben to another extreme. Also, at the risk of making too much of it, Ben Gvir is a much more populist figure. Ben Gvir is also just often in personal terms a more likable individual. <laughs> he's also he's a politician in ways that Smutrich isn't, which is to say, Ben Gvir very much wants to be loved by the public. You know? And Smutrich really doesn't care whether or not the public loves him. He just wants wants them to be listening to him, wants them to be following uh, what what he says. Um, and 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 Ben Gvir, you know, and then one thing about the present moment, a lot of the changes that are being proposed to the judiciary system, to the to the rules of the game, to the police ministry, to this and that, taken in, in and of themselves, a lot of these proposals are not crazy. And there's all kinds of reasonable, good faith people who are willing to entertain them. What so many people are finding unnerving in the case of Ben Gvir, I mean, I was talking to one of Israel's leading criminologists, and he said, look at the changes that they want to make in, um, in, in police, in the structure of the police force themselves are entirely reasonable to talk about. The problem is doing it with this police minister who has not the slightest idea of how anything actually works and who's a kind of pyromaniac, right? And elsewhere, it's just it's a combination of the the blitz of this and everything is happening at once. And like they're just throwing so much stuff at the body politic and refusing to compromise on anything. Right. right? Well, it's a bulldozer also, as opposed to a process. Bulldozer, and in the case, obviously, it's very tied up with Mr. Netanyahu's personal legal troubles, which is why he used to talk like a Likud. Per he used to talk like a classic disciple of Menachem Begin about the judiciary and the rule of law. But once the court started looking into his dealings and invite indicting him for things, that went out the window. Um, and again, reasonable people like there's Israeli liberals who've been criticizing Israel's judicial activism for decades, right? But now it gets put in this whole package, and it's in the package of people who clearly argue, "Yes, we're going to steamroll you." And if you'll if you'll say that's not nice, they'll say, "You steamrolled me. You steamrolled me in the past, and now I'm going to steamroll you, and you're going to live with it." Right, because it's very different, I think, end visions of what they're trying to do when it comes to Lee Smutrich and Ben Gavir. And so who is, who is the spiritual leader of the religious Zionist movement? It's a and who is, who is their spiritual leader? There are do Ben Gavir and Smutrich look up to any sort of Well, it's a funny leader? thing. I mean, Ben Gavir much less so. Also, again, he's a more populist kind of guy. Also, frankly, he's like from a, he's a non-Shasts Fardy Jew, right? So he comes from this tradi loose, looser traditionalist background. For instance, in the early days of this coalition, Smutrich floated the possibility of outlawing or like ending the practice of soccer games on Shabbat afternoons, right? And Ben Gvir, of course, would never say something like that because it's just like, who talks like that, right? Mm -hmm. It's unclear who the major rabbinic authorities are because also Smutrich and some of the, I mean, Smutrich is educated by rabbis. His father is a rabbi to whom he listens, et cetera. A very important figure for Ben Gvir and these guys, though he does disagree with him at times, is somebody named Tzvi Tao, who is the leader of what's called the Haredi Leumi, right? Sort of the, what's called the Haredalim, which is to say, you know, Rav Cook's idea is you identify in many ways with the Zionist movement, and you also are willing to be in dialogue with Western culture because it has a lot to teach you. Right. Rav Cook quotes by name philosophers like Bergson and Schopenhauer and Nietzsche, and he's encouraging his students to study literature and all that kind of thing. Um, you have this Hardal stream, which emerges in recent decades, and Svi Tao, who's a very brilliant and complicated man, um, uh, is, is at the head of it, who argues, no, well, we are dividing the parts here. We accept, we want to be part of the national project of Zionism, not least because we understand it better than anyone else does. And we don't want anything to do with Western culture, right? Yeah. Um, there was a fascinating argument between Smutrich and Tao in, one of the, in, the, in the 2021 coalition negotiations. If the price, if the price of keeping a right-wing government in power is sitting with Mansour Abbas, the moderate Islamist, so that, and keeping out 
the left and especially the LGBT people and the feminists like Mirav Mikhaili and the Merits Party, who do you sit with? Rav Tao said, I go with the moderate Islamist because he dislikes gay people as much as I do. Right. Um, and, and, and it's the Israeli liberals who are the real enemy of the Jewish soul and the Jewish people. And Smutrich said, no. The Arab, especially the, the moderate Islamist who has any ties to the Muslim Brotherhood, that is the thing, the person I can never, never sit in, so sit with. So you see some of the fault lines are kind of interesting. One of the things that's interesting about the current struggle is the emergence is like for men, people like me have wondered for a long time, when will the Israeli center and center left find its voice? Yeah. Like in the last election cycles, it has been hard, at least for this observer, to miss that the passion and the organization was all on the right. Yeah. And it'll be interesting to see what emerges from the current, because people are realizing that there's also real battles of ideas here. And, and are there are there any voices in the religious Zionist movement yes. that are pushing yes. back on this? No, there are. There are. There are rabbis. There, you know, there are many rabbis who are. There are many religious Zionist rabbis, and some of them are extremely substantial people who say we want to see changes in the judiciary, but not like this. Not steamrolling people. Not without national consensus. Not you know, devoid of conversation, et cetera. But what's driving the process, legis- and here I'm, you know, wearing my political analyst hat, the, Hare- the Haredim are unwilling to give on anything, right? Because the Haredim have an unprecedented possibility for power here. And they need, they want to, it's important to them to lock in as many gains, economically, politically, et cetera, as they can, because they have a window of opportunity that they fear won't come again. Um, and also Netanyahu, part of his strategy with the Haredim, um, as my friend Gary Edinger, the journalist, put it, you know, every other prime minister who's worked well with the ultra-Orthodox has been generous to them. Netanyahu isn't generous. Netanyahu says, you're running the country along with me. Right. Um, so they are refusing any compromise. Also, and, and also what's being driven here is, frankly, that Mr. Netanyahu can't afford a compromise because then he might actually get convicted of all these things right. that he's been accused of. Um, so, so that's, and there, and, and at the same time, the resentment and the culture war, there's been this, one of the things that's gone on is that much of secular Israel, I mean, the early, one of the reasons why Rav Cook was able to kindle the way he did to the early Zionist revolutionaries was that while they were rejecting Jewish tradition, they were deep in conversation with it, right? Ben-Gurion, again, I'm just using him because he's the best known figure, but like people with whom Rav Cook was in conversation like Beryl Katz-Nelson and so forth, they would argue like, you know, I have a good interpretation of Jewish history. I learned in yeshiva too. I know the Bible inside out. I know a lot of Talmud. And I actually think this is a better version for Jewish history and culture. And frankly, mm-hmm. much of secular Israel left that discussion behind a long time ago, which also means that like when you've had these, these cruxes like the Oslo Accords and the Gaza disengagement, the religious Zionists are speaking an ideological language that much of secular Israel no longer understands, no mm-hmm. longer has the vessels to understand. And then also it's why you've been seeing in recent years these attempts by, and and I'm and sometimes part of it, and I think they're wonderful, on the part of like secular Israel to re-engage with Jewish culture, not to become Orthodox, right? right. Like you notice how so many Israeli musicians are using texts like traditional Jewish texts, right? You have study circles of people, let's study Talmud along with modern Hebrew poetry, right? So you have this thing going on, but it hasn't yet gotten traction. And one wonders if it might start to come from this because it's been fascinating to see the ways in which so many religious Zionists, moderate religious Zionists with whom I'm, by the way, there are a lot of moderate religious Zionists with whom I'm in touch, including in touch this morning, right? Who are not people of the left, right? And talk to them and they are not people of the left by any stretch of the imagination, but they don't want an Israeli polity making changes to the rules of the game like these and in this way. And it'll be interesting to see if that voice manages to find itself and then frankly what happens if these laws all go through how long those those can can last before you know people's before the i mean the whole i mean at this point i'm going to state my own view right the governing coalition is about creating a governing co okay let me put it like this <laughs> i think the viewers of you know those of you who are listening have probably sensed that i'm not a fan of the current judicial reforms the philosophical idea here, okay? Because I know you're not here to hear Udomirsky's political views. You hear 
the coalition, including the national Israeli newscast that I listened to just a few minutes before joining you all. The members of the coalition regularly cite the will of the people, the will of the people, democracy is the will of the people, the will of the people. Philosophically, there's this populist idea, right? That there is such a thing as the people. The, and this is like, they're not stupid. I mean, their intellectuals will tell you, what, the will of the people doesn't contain compromises? Of course it does. It contains the compromises contained in the coalition agreements. And the governing coalition represents the will of the people. And everything derives from the will of the people. The, because Israel has no written constitution, et cetera, the judiciary derives its legitimacy if it has any from the will of the people. You know, government, you know, legal advisors to government offices have to do the government's bidding because they are representing the will of the people. Without the will of the people, there is nothing. Now, this is, in terms of this notion of the will of the people, it's a kind of majoritarianism. The philosophical roots of it in modern political thought are from Jean-Jacques Rousseau, right? And we see them in the French Revolution, right? Where it's sort of like the general will in Rousseau's writing, the general will creates the nation and the nation is antecedent to the state and all of that. And you sort of merge your will into that of the general will. And yes, there are elements in Rav Cook's teachings that tend to this because, you know, for Rav Cook, again, the Jewish people is part of God's presence on earth. So in his time, he sees like the mass movement of the Jewish people towards the land of Israel and these people wanting to create social justice as, so to speak, the divine will in action. Here, as a student of Rav Kook and somebody who's devoted many, many, many years to studying him, as elsewhere, I think he, did, he didn't grasp that he was playing with fire. Because also something that I meant to say earlier, a crucial feature of Rav Kook's teaching and a crucial feature of his thought world, and it's one that many early Zionists shared, he had trouble imagining Jews with power, right. and he couldn't imagine Jews using power badly. At some point, he says, like, why were we in exile? You know, he says, we were in exile for all these years to teach us how badly power can corrupt, and so that when we return to Zion, we can do it in a peaceful way, and God, I'm sure that divine providence will keep us from having to resort to violence. Right. And so there's a kind of, that's the thing with Rev Cook. He says, so I guess that that, uh, that surmise is really like what his view on this would be right now would be. Like, I think probably against what we see happening now. You know, I think so many people. I mean, it's like this. I'm like I said, Rev Cook is a very living presence in religious Zionism today. Right? Is a very living presence in religious Zionism today. I mean, I could tell you many, many stories about that. Um. So when people tell me, what, professor, oh, you're a great professor. You think you understand Rav Cook better than his son did? What's with you? My answer to that is I'm not saying I understand him better than his son did, okay? I have to take responsibility in the here and now for how I'm interpreting him. And I really believe if I get to, when I die and I go to heaven, and if I, God tells me, why did you do something that you thought was morally wrong and cruel on such and such day, if I say to him, God, I thought Rav Cook said it was okay. I could be wrong. I'm not supposed to read God's mind, but I imagine God would tell me, don't talk to me about Rav Cook. I'm not talking about Rav Cook. I'm talking about you. Yeah. Right? I think that's, you know, that's 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 a thing. And, you know, people, you know, I will say Rav Cook lived in a different time. And so, you know, I go more frankly to the left. Other people will tell you Rav Cook lived in a different time. He didn't realize how horrible secular Zionism would be. He didn't realize how terrible the Palestinians would be, you know, and he would be all for us now. This becomes the question of what do you do? Can any great theologian's ideas be translated into an immediate political program? Whoever they are. Yeah. I mean, I agree with you. Even today, um, you know, someone like Jabotinsky, I think, misinterpret that he would have been, I believe he actually would have been okay with, um, which actually comes to one of our questions here that someone no. left, uh, sure. having a state on part of the land of Israel, even right. though it's not the land of Israel. And I think someone said here is, can you make a distinction between state and nation? And sure. I'll turn it over to you. And I think that that's part of it is there is the land of Israel and right. the Jews have accepted a state on part of the land of Israel. Right. Well, that's the thing, you know, is the state a sacred body? You know, I mean, I, I distinguishing between the state and the nation is really easy to do because Jewish nationalists did that all the time, right? We forget. I mean, there's been a lot of scholarship in recent decades on the moves for Jewish autonomy. You know, in, in 1906, the Zionist movement adopted an official platform which called for 
recognition of Jews as national minorities in Europe alongside recognition of Jews as a national minority in Palestine, right? Minority nationalism, when the League of Nations came online, so to speak, after World War I, as a legal structure, what the League of Nations was about was guaranteeing the rights of minorities within existing states, right? So this notion that if you're a, a nation, you have to have a state. Many Zionists didn't think that. When Theodore Herzl talks about a Jewish state, it's unclear. Does he mean a state like France or does he mean a state like New Jersey, right? You know, some right. sort of commonwealth or principality within, within something larger. Um, Probably and, at that time, that was his thinking since the Ottoman Empire had not disintegrated. Right. Well, it's quite possible that that's what he was thinking. And other designers were thinking that way, too. Now, the thing is, why nationalism, we forget that in the night through much of the 19th century, in the early 20th century, nationalism was a liberal cause. Because nationalism was a claim for self-determination and people saying, I want to rule myself. I don't want to be ruled by some empire. It's a moral claim that's pressed upwards. After World War I, those empires, many of them aren't there anymore. The Russian Empire, the Austro-Hungarian Empire, which was actually not a bad place to live, you know, and the Ottoman Empire. So the national groups are pressing them against one another. When national, so like nationalism as the idea that people need to find a way to express their language, their culture, their sense of place, their sense of belonging, that you can't really be human without that. That's one sort of thing where nationalism gets scary to terrifying is when it becomes identified with the state because the state, right, as Max Weber famously said, is the institution that holds the, the monopoly of legitimate violence in a society, right? The state is inherently coercive. Um, and that's the, the, the ultimate fusion of nation and state is, 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 is regularly terrifying. Now, one of the things that happened, remember earlier on, I said that part of the, one of the crises, the crises of modernity that created Jewish, that, that propelled modern Jewish history were political, social, economic, but they were also cultural and communal. When, when the state of Israel come, you know, comes to be, it also tries to solve the problem. It's like yet another attempt to create an alternative Jewish community. There's lots of ways of trying to create alternative forms of Jewish community in the modern world. The American style synagogue, you know, the sort of the shul with the pool, with the community center, with the catering hall, with the classrooms. That's one version of it, right? Jewish socialism is another version of it. The kibbutz is another version of it. And the Jewish state is another version of it, right? And so like the state finds itself trying to deal with communal questions and questions of religious identity um, and belonging that states are regularly not that well equipped to deal with, though it's important to remember that, you know, America is a bit of an outlier in its separation of religion and state. Most Western democracies have some sort of accommodation with established right. religion that's just, you know, for the sake of good order. Um, just one last question, and we'll sure. just briefly, because we're basically at time. Um, right. Just someone mentioned about I'm going to email this in. There's we should we don't want to confuse the ultra orthodox Haredi who live in Meishrei sure. Brock. Okay, who, right. you know they they largely don't even believe in the state of Israel. What we're talking well, about is religious Zionists right. who are really they serve in the army. They embrace yeah. the state of Israel, right. looking to well, settle that's, the land. That's a really important distinction, even if it gets a little fuzzy at times, right? Because like I said, you know somebody like Smutrich, you know who's Kardal, he himself did minimal army service. But, you know, people like Smudridge say, will say, yeah, people should go to the army. They, um, the, the Haredim have been undergoing changes. First of all, so like it's hard at times when I have to bear the distinction in mind between Ashkenazim and Sephardim and also like, and like, and, and the Shas party, which is like the dominant, you know, of course, like, which is the Mizrahi Haredi party and in many respects adopted the Ashkenazi style of mobilized ideological orthodoxy in order to beat the Ashkenazim at their own game. Um, the Haredim still theologically, yeah, like unlike the religious Zionists, they will never say that the state of Israel is, you know, God's kingdom on earth or something like that, right? They won't say that. However, they have been becoming more nationalist. Let me put it like this. You know, you there once upon a time, it was easier to find Haredim who criticized the state of Israel on pure theological grounds and who also were concerned with the theological and moral temptations of nationalism. You had very important Haredi thinkers who articulated their concerns about Zionism in that sort of way. Jews aren't supposed to be involved in violence or a state that is not run by the Torah will inevitably be violent and ruthless mm. and xenophobic and chauvinist. Um, you don't hear that anymore. There's a great, I, there's a great, there's a much greater willingness for them to assume power and also to assume responsibility for large swaths of the society. Sure, I'll be the health minister. I won't call myself minister. I'll be deputy health minister. That's among the Ashkenazim, right? 
Mm. Um, at the same time, it is still very important to them. They will, they, it is, it is still, you know, so like they don't, obviously they, 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 and again, I'm, also one has to differentiate like many, much of the Haredi rank and file would really like to get out from under their political leadership and they're prevented from doing so. Um, so yes, there are still distinctions with, with, with the Haredim and so much of what this is about is, there an, is, is that they're wanting to preserve their power and their institutions um, and also increasingly use their power over Israeli society. One last point, the chief rabbinate. When, when the chief rabbin was created in 1921, part of the understanding was that the Haredim would not be bound by it at all. Because of course they were totally against some like new kind of rabbinic institution being created by Rev Cook. Over the years, while they don't really accept the rabbinate's authority, they've utterly taken it over because it's a patronage mill, like you wouldn't believe, and mm -hmm. it's also a way of exercising power over large elements, large elements of the society. So they're really a moving target. The the quies the politically quiescent Haredim of the past are gone. Right. It's, it's, right. They're seeing the benefits that the state could provide. Very much. Make sure and that they, and, they and, want and to get this whole. Remember about ultra-Orthodox politics in America, as well as in Israel, is highly transactional. Right. But it, just to that person's question, th yes. they're not the ones that are putting up, uh, you know, settlements beyond. No, but. That, that is not what they're. No, doing. but it's worth noting that there are now Haredi cities located on the West Bank. They are in, they're sufficiently close to Jerusalem and Tel Aviv, such that they right. will never be evacuated under any conceivable settlement, peace right. settlement. But it does create large numbers of Haredim who are extremely vested in continued Israeli presence on the West. Right. Anyhow, we're at time. Um, I want to thank uh, everyone thank for joining us today. Yehuda, please let everyone know where they can find your work on yes, social so media. Like and find your work you can, in I would say two things. One, you can email me at mersky at brandeis.edu. Um, also, in a few weeks, some of you may have heard of a magazine called New Lines. I have a very lengthy essay coming out there in a few weeks describing um, all of this. Um, again, you were kind enough to mention my book uh, published by Yale University Press. But again, it's mersky at brandeis.edu. And also, I have to say here at Brandeis, there's more than me. I mean, I have lots of wonderful colleagues in Judaic and Israel studies who are um, phenomenal resources. Uh, for well, all kinds of things. We hope you're fighting the good fight on the campus. Uh, the campus wars that are going on, that's a whole other topic. That's a whole, that's a whole, that's um, a whole. Anyhow, next week, I hope everyone can join us for another very timely conversation, this time about the dangers of white supremacy. Please make sure to sign up for all our discussions and please donate to us at ccfpeace.com. That is ccfpeace.com. Uh, we need your support to bring you great conversations like this. We hope to see everyone online. Everyone stay safe. Thank you, Yehuda. My pleasure. Thank you. Take care. Bye-bye.